<laughs> I didn't realize I had so many relatives. I just want to, so excited to see all of my family here today. Um, wow, this is really full. I didn't expect this. Um, when I was envisioning this, the curtain was down and there was like eight of us here. So this is, this is a little intimidating. Um, you know, a couple of, uh, this is a unique week. It's a unique week, like Troy said. You know, this is something that we do every year. And so looking forward to this week, um, the teaching team, you know, as they were getting together, looking forward to the calendar uh, a couple months ago, they began trying to think about who they could get to communicate um, on this special morning. And so they kind of came up with a, a few ideas. And the first idea they came up with, which I thought was a, was a really good one, was wouldn't it be great if we could just bring in somebody that was just a fantastic Bible teacher? I mean, somebody who could take the scriptures and just open them up in a powerful and profound way, you know, that would just really move people, and people would be so excited about the power of the Word of God, and they'd go home, and they would tweet about it, and they'd get on Facebook and say how awesome it was. And so they thought of somebody that they could do that, and they asked him, and he said that he couldn't do it. And so that was too bad. But um, then... Uh, <laughs> So they came up with another idea. They thought, you know, I wonder if we could just find maybe somebody that was just this tremendously gifted communicator. You know, somebody that uh, was great at telling stories. And when this guy told a story, I mean, boy, it just came alive. They just picked something in scripture. And when he would talk about it, people would just be so fired up and excited because what a great storyteller this guy was. And so they thought of somebody who'd be just perfect for that. You know, somebody who's awesome at it. And they asked him, and unfortunately, he wasn't available or able to do it either. So, thank you. So finally, they just, you know, with not a lot of options left, they said, you know what we need to do? We just need to find somebody who's incredibly handsome. You know? <laughs> so I stand before you humble and handsome. And you know, I felt so bad for telling them no the first two times they asked. that. Um, Well, back when uh, we were, when they did ask me to, if I would speak today, I began to think immediately and pray and ask God, say, God, what is it that you would have us talk about today from your precious word of God? And um, I began to uh, think about the fact that it's December 30th today. Tomorrow will be New Year's Eve. And the next day, guys, we are starting 2013. Can you believe it? Unbelievable, Right? And so I was just kind of thinking about this, and then I also began to think about who would most likely be here. I mean, traditionally, as Troy said, this is a week between Christmas and New Year's that for us as a church, we've always, for a long time, we didn't have any church. We just wanted to give a, a blessing out to all of our incredible volunteers that serve year-round and work so hard around Christmas, and to our great staff. And we wanted to give them a week off to have church at home with our journey group or just with their family and not have to come here and, and carry on the duties that they do every week. And so this was kind of our thing. But then, over the years, more and more people just wanted to come to church on this Sunday. And so we began meeting. We first did it over in the theater, and then we had it here, and there were just a, a few people, a few, maybe a couple of hundred, and it's just kind of gotten bigger and bigger. And, and so the fact that all of you are here this morning really, to me, is amazing, and it kind of tells me a little bit about you, and there are things that I'd already kind of thought about, and that is, first of all, that I think that you're probably disciplined people. 
I mean, the church doors are open. This is what you do on Sunday morning. Uh, You get dressed and you grab your Bible and you go to church. It's just what you do. It's part of your routine because you're generally uh, probably a disciplined group of people. The second thing that I thought about uh, you is that you're probably passionate. You're probably a lot like me. I'm very passionate. And, uh, you know, if the church doors are open... You're going to be here because you love God with all of your heart and you love the church and you love God's people. And when the church doors are open, you're going to be here because you want to worship God. True? You're right? Right? So listen. So you're disciplined and you're passionate. So my guess is because of that, that you've already given a good deal of thought to what needs to happen in your life coming forward, what needs to change in your life or Uh, and in your world. And so you have most likely in my mind probably thought about some plans, maybe some resolutions. Well, I want to just tell you a little bit for me um, what my attitude about uh, resolutions. For a long time in my life, I only had one resolution that I engaged in. Every first of the year would come up and I was very resolute about my resolution. And that was that I wasn't going to have any resolutions. You know what I mean? How many people are like that? Okay, a few of you. Not many, because you're disciplined and passionate people. <laughs> but, but I was very resolute about not having resolutions. Here's why. Because come February, come March, maybe at the longest, maybe earlier, all of my resolutions were like completely distant memories. You know, have you, have you ever been like that? And then what happens is, is then I get depressed and I get discouraged, you know, because now I'm just eating everything in sight. You know, and I'm sitting in front of the TV for hours, you know, flipping the channels because I'm depressed. And so I started out with all these great things, but what's ended up happening because of this stupid resolution that I had is now I'm just, I'm in discipline, I'm I'm in uh, incredible um, depression and I can't get off the couch only because of that stupid resolution that I made. So I decided no more resolutions for me. But then I turned 40. I know, shocking. You never would have thought. I turned 40, and then I turned a little older than 40. And then any motivation to do the right thing is a good motivation, right? (laughs) And so I began having resolutions again. In fact, so much so that um, this year um, I had kind of made a resolution that I'm going to try to get in a little bit better shape. I'm tired of walking upstairs and being out of breath when I get to the top of them. And so I decided I'm going to just really try to get in better shape. This is the year when I'm really going to try to tackle that. And you can hold me accountable to it. I I encourage you to do that. And so knowing my history with resolutions, I began back in November kind of gearing up for my resolution to kick into full steam in just a a couple of days. And so um, that's just kind of where, where it is. So just knowing that over the next few days... Um, that we're going to begin those kind of new plans and, and actions, and we're going to act on new priorities, and at the very least, we're going to begin a new year together. I began thinking about priorities, not just for me and my family, but also for you. And I'm sure that all the things that you are planning to do, that you're choosing to do proactively and to proactively change this coming year are really good things. And so as I began to pray and think about what God would have us to share this morning, I began to become consumed with a thought of missing the best thing in the shadow of good things. Missing the best thing in the shadow of good things. And so I began to ask myself, what is the most important thing for me? What is the most important thing for my family? In light of the opportunity to speak to you, what is the most important thing for you and your family as well? Um, My wife and I have been married for 23 years, and April will be 24 years. Can you believe that? 
You wouldn't believe it. We got married when we were eight. But we've lived in, uh, we've owned four homes together. And each one of those homes that we've purchased, and I don't know what this makes, this says something about us or not, but every one of the homes that we've actually bought and lived in together, uh, we've had those either built for us by a builder or we've built them ourselves. We've never moved into a uh, pre-owned home before. And I remember the first time when we were in our late 20s and we bought our first home, uh, man, the house took about nine months to build and it just seemed like the foundation took forever. I mean, have you ever built a home? The foundation just seems to take forever. Well, you know what? There's a reason for that. Because the foundation is so critically important. Our foundation is so critically important as well. Um, I don't know how many of you people um, in this county that we live in are chicken owners, but uh, I am a chicken owner. Um, Not because I want to be a chicken owner, but my wife loves chickens, loves all animals. And so a few months ago, um, she... Uh, asked me if, I mean, we already had chickens. They were in this little pathetic little thing, you know, that that we had for them. And she asked me if I would build her a a chicken coop. And so I kind of embarked on this thing of building a a chicken coop. And even though I've been uh, real involved in the process of building, especially the last couple homes that that we built, um, I didn't do any of the framing. And so um, I was in the process of of building this little uh, chicken coop, only about six by eight, not a huge thing. And uh, I, I built a floor, and then a couple of my uh, buddies came over, and, and because it was so small, man, we just started hammering and nailing like crazy, and before we knew it, man, all four walls were up, and the trusses were in place, you know, and it was all good. Well, and a couple of days later, I went to put the sides, the sheathing, on the outside of this building, and guess what we had forgotten? We had forgotten, <laughs> we had completely forgotten to, to really make sure that the walls were absolutely square, and that they were true. And so I began to put the windows in place and the sheathing in place and the trim and the doors. And I got to tell you, what a nightmare. What a nightmare because none of my walls were straight and none of them were true. And it just reminded me so much how critically important our foundations are. And so I wanted to share with you what I think is an important reminder about those foundations and what they need to be as we go into the new year. What I want to share with you today is really not a one, two, three list of things that we need to do. I just want to remind you of what needs to be our constant foundation as we live our lives as followers of Christ. And so there's a story, and it's in Matthew chapter 22. And I'd love to invite you to uh, take your copy of the scriptures that you have with you today, open them up and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Get out your iPad or your smartphone. And if you don't have those things, of course, we're going to have it on the screen for you. But I want to ask you if you'll do me this favor. If you don't have your phone with you, or if you don't have your scripture with you, or you have your, uh, maybe your smartphone, that you'll go home today and find your Bible, and you would dog ear Matthew chapter 22, because I hope that in the, this next year to come, that you will come back to it and remember some of the things that we drag out of the scripture today that I think will be so uh, important for us. And so as you're looking at that, I just want to ask God if together we can um, go to him in prayer and ask his blessing over this message today. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for the privilege of uh, being together here today. God, we're opening up your word now, and I pray, Father, that as we do, that we would have eyes to see, we have ears to hear, that we, would, uh, that we would teach it well, and God, that you would guide our thinking and our hearts and our minds, and God, that we'd be open to everything that it has for us today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I want to kind of set the scene, if I can, uh, for this um, piece of scripture, Matthew 22. I've just, I absolutely love it. We're in the middle of Passion Week. And in case you're just not familiar with what Passion Week is, Passion Week was the week uh, before the, best, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Passion Week begins on a Sunday with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people are, are have palm branches in their hands and they're waving their palm branches and they're sweeping out the street in front of him and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, in Jesus' ministry, they're beginning to take him seriously. They're really beginning to finally believe that maybe this is the Messiah, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, the promised one. And there's a great deal of excitement around Jesus. People are beginning to believe and understand And everybody seems to be buying in except one group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, who are the the Pharisees and the uh, the Sadducees? Well, they're the religious and the political leaders of Israel. They make up a group called the Sanhedrin, about 69 of them combined together, plus the high priest. They work together as the political and the religious leaders of Israel, but they're not pals at all. They're not friends. They're kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans. They do the same thing, but they don't like each other. And, but they do have one thing in common, and that is their hatred for Jesus. They have the intent of smearing him. Remember, they don't believe Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. And to them, he's just another third-party troublemaker that was going to mess up their political balance and their political plans, and so they hate him. And so that's the backdrop for Matthew chapter 22. So Jesus is going to tell a parable to the crowd, and both the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to take a whack at him. He's been teaching in front of a large crowd, which is perfect for them, because they want to try to catch him saying something or doing something that's going to discredit him. And the more people see it, the better. And so we begin reading in Matthew 22, verse 15. And then the Pharisees, went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodian, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. None of that they believe. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. So here's what's going down, guys. The Pharisees are going to take first whack at Jesus. And they're going to bring up the issue of paying taxes to Caesar. Now, the Pharisees are evil, but they're not stupid. Israel is under Roman control. And so they're not only going to have, as, as Israelites, to pay taxes to the temple for their own national taxes, but they also have to pay taxes to Rome, which they hate. And so the Pharisees take along these, uh, these Roman political group called the Herodians, And they're going to ask them in front of them, Jesus, is it lawful for us as Jews to pay Roman taxes? Now listen carefully. 
if he says yes, he's offended the Jews and he's supported the Roman oppression and occupation. If he says no, he's going to be in violation of Roman law and he will certainly be discredited before in front of the Jews and arrested for treason against Rome. And the Pharisees are so excited. They think they've got him. The perfect question, the perfect dilemma. How will he possibly answer this question? And I love the way he does. I love what he says. You know what he says to him? He says, show me the coin for the tax. And so somebody in the crowd brings up a denarius. A denarius was a Roman coin. It was worth about uh, a day's wage. And he takes the coin and he looks at it. And he says to them, whose image is on this coin? And they say to him, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, then give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give God what belongs to God. And they're amazed. Why are they amazed? You know why they're amazed? Remember, the Jews are religious people. They know the word of God. And they know that in Genesis chapter 1, multiple times, what did it say? What has the image of God stamped on it? You. You. Genesis says that when he created, when God created man, he made him in whose image? His own image. And so Jesus says to them, it has his image on it. Give him what has his image on it. But give to God what has his image on it. And I love that. They're amazed. The people are amazed, and they are silenced. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that great? So next, the Sadducees are going to take their turn. They're going to try to stump him on the issue of resurrection. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after life. They didn't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in demons. They do not believe in life after life, and here's why. Here's why. Because they believe that the Pentateuch, stay with me, that the Pentateuch was the only holy scripture, that all of the rest of the scripture that would make up the Old Testament supported only the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those were the only holy scriptures. And listen, if you read all of those books, guess what you're going to find out? Moses never talks about the resurrected life. He never talks about heaven. He never talks about angels, not once. And so the Sadducees, for years, they've just got at the, at the, at the Pharisees and with this whole thing, and they think they're going to get to Jesus because here's what they know about Jesus. Jesus absolutely believes in life after life. In fact, he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's taught over and over that his resurrection is what will bring freedom and forgiveness for sin. And so if they can stump him about the resurrection, then they have discredited him and they've embarrassed him and it's over for Jesus. And so their question goes like this. Verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man having no children 
has no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That comes from Deuteronomy 25. They know that. It's from the law of Moses. Now, there were seven brothers, they say, among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. Now, after them, the woman died. So in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, and they think they've got him. What answer could he possibly give? They think, they listen, they've stumped the Pharisees with this idea for years. But notice what Jesus says, verse 29. Jesus answers and he says, you know what? You're wrong. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, life after life, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, and the God uh, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Here's what he says to them. He says, you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. He says, you assume that if there was a heaven, it would be like here. It would be like earth. You're forgetting who God is, he said. He's God, and he's infinitely powerful. Because of sin, yes, the curse of sin here on earth is death. Here. The relationship between a man and a woman repopulates the earth. It's a necessary thing because of death. But not so in heaven. Because the power of God in heaven There will only be life, eternal life. And we will eternally be like angels. And so he says, to answer your question, she won't be married to any of them. Powerful, powerful. Silence them. Then he says, you know what? And you also don't know the scriptures. Because haven't you read what God said to you? He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. He didn't say that he was the God of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac or Jacob, but that he is. And therefore, they cannot be dead, but alive. And guess what the scripture he's quoting is? Their Pentateuch, their law of Moses, Exodus chapter 3. And the Bible says that they were astonished. Now, We come to the next part of the story. And for us this morning, I think this is the crux of it. All of that I I shared with you is background to what I think God is going to give us for us today next. Let's read it together, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the Pharisees, reeling from being shut down by the money question and being embarrassed by the answer that Jesus gave so easily to the Sadducees that they could never give, 
they gathered together off to the side. And the scripture says that one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. Now, I always assumed that this guy, this lawyer, lawyer that the scripture talks about was maybe just like the rest of them, and he was a doubter. But I'm not really sure if he was or not after studying this scripture. It doesn't really say, if you read it closely, what it says is that the Pharisees gathered together and that one of them asked Jesus a question. You know what I think might be going on? Maybe. He may be a doubter. He may just be trying to trick Jesus again. Maybe. But the scripture says that he's a lawyer. It says that he's an expert in the law. And the Pharisees always traveled around as an entourage. Imagine one of the political candidates coming to your town. They don't come alone, do they? They come with busloads of people. And the Pharisees were exactly the same way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they traveled, they traveled with all kinds of support people. Remember, they are leading the nation of Israel. So they're not alone. They always have with them scribes. They always have with them servants. They always have with them experts in the law because it's from the law that they are going to lead. And so they have these, law, these lawyers in place, experts in the law to help them interpret and to enforce the law. And I just wonder if Scripture called this guy one of them, not because he was a Pharisee or not because he was who they were, but because he was just always with them. He was one of their posse. He was one to their entourage. He was one of their group. And maybe he has a genuine question. Here's why I wonder about it. He's an expert of the law. This means that he studied the Old Testament his entire life. He's given his whole life to study the Old Testament. And listen to what's just happened. He has just heard Jesus, and he has just seen Jesus give two incredible answers to two very difficult questions on the subject of money and marriage. If I was going to get asked questions in front of a whole big old crowd of people, I would not want it to be about marriage or money. But that's exactly what they did to Jesus. And I think what amazed the crowd and amazed this man wasn't that Jesus was so shrewd or cunning or clever, even though he was, that he was a great debater. I don't think that's what really moved them at all. I think what moved them was the fact that what, when he spoke, what resonated with him so deep was that he tended to always speak just truth. It just resonated in their heart that what he was saying was true. Jesus just simply spoke truth. And I wonder if this lawyer heard it, saw it, felt it, and wanted to give one more test. I don't know. I'm not sure. But either way, Jesus gives an answer, and he gives a brilliant one. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy, and he says this, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And so when we talk today about plans and resolutions for the future, the changes that we want to make in our lives, the ways, we, the ways that we want to do life differently, it just seems so important to me to know what's most important. And I think Jesus has given it to us right here in a huge and powerful way. So what does it mean, you guys? What does it mean to love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind? Well, when I think about loving God with my heart, with all of my heart, I think of passion. Love God passionately. And when I think of someone that just seemed to love God passionately, you know who I think of? The psalmist David. In Psalm chapter 63, just listen to what he said. 
Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. So my lips will ever praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And listen to this. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Loving God with all of our heart, I think, also means maintaining a healthy fear of him. It's not a fear, listen to this, it's not a fear of his discipline. It's a fear of his distance. We grow to a place where we can understand exactly, exactly what David felt when he said my favorite psalm, Psalm 83, how lovely is your dwelling place where you live. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. For my soul yearns, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, a swallow, a nest for herself, a place near your altar, O Lord my God. And he's full of envy over birds that live in the presence of God. He later says, I would rather be a doorkeeper a lowly doorkeeper standing outside at the door of the presence of God than to dwell in the middle of the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and he is a shield. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. He's my God. I see passion in David and I want my life to be passionate in the same thing and in the same way. When I think about loving God with all of our soul, I think of loving God with eternity in mind. C.S. Lewis, one of my most favorite writers, one of my favorite writers, says, people who did the most for this present life are people who were focused on the next. People who did the most for this present life are people who were focused on the next. One of the greatest things we have in life is to know that this isn't all there is. My dad just turned 78. He's sitting right down here. He was a pastor for many years. He's been married to my mom for some 55 years. He studies the scripture now just for fun. If you go to his house, you'll find Bibles laying all around his house, not closed and dusty, but open and worn. My parents know they don't have a whole lot of time left to live on the earth, but it isn't sad to them. What is sad to them is people they love who live as though that this is all there is. Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? There was one man who understood that this life isn't all there is. I think it was the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he said in the book of Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in the life after life, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection of the dead, to live with him forever in heaven. And he went on to say in verse 20 of the same chapter, chapter 3, but my citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Loving God with our soul 
means that we don't live like there's no tomorrow. Did you hear that? We don't live like there's no tomorrow. We live as if there is absolutely a tomorrow. We live as though there's absolutely a tomorrow. And so finally, to love God with our mind, I think, just means to know him. Loving God with our mind simply means that we're going to educate ourselves with truth. I love what Psalm 1 says. It says, blessed, which means happy, content is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is where? In the law of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. And listen what he will be. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. And its leaf leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. If we don't take the time to study, to read, to meditate on God's word together, I can guarantee you over this next year, at some point, we as Christians, as people, will wither. We won't prosper. We will not yield a single ounce of fruit when it's needed the most. You know why there are open Bibles at my mom and dad's house, laying all over the house? Open and worn. Because they know that there's infinitely more to know. They know that there's infinitely more to know. And so when we love God with our heart, we don't worry about things like taxes. We don't worry about money. It's not because we love God with all of our heart. When we love God with all of our soul, we live motivated by the reality that this life isn't all there is. We live knowing that there is a heaven waiting for us that's beyond what we could ever imagine. So life after life, the resurrection, is critical to us when we love God with all of our soul. We love God with all of our mind. We, unlike the Sadducees, won't miss the fact that God is the God of the living because Abraham is living today. Isaac is living today. Jacob is alive today. Andrew is living today. Sharon is living today. So this isn't a message, do this and do this and do this. It's just a reminder to love God more than you love anything else. When you're making your plans and getting into shape or whatever you're wanting to do for the new year, just make sure that first and foremost, you're loving God and you're loving him well. Every day of your life is consumed with loving God. Annie Dillard wrote, the way we live our days is the way we live our lives. The way we live our days is the way we live our lives. And I just want to just say to us this morning, this is the challenge. Let's live to love. Let's live to love. And here's how we'll know if we're on track. If we love our neighbor as ourself, then we know that we're loving God with our heart, mind, and soul. Will you pray with me together? Father, we're so grateful for your powerful word. Thank you, God, so much for letting us open it today together. And I pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit lives within us today as followers of Christ. 
that we would learn more and more and more to love you with everything that we have. And so God, I pray over everyone here, wherever they are in their journey with you, God, that this year will be a year of new things. That we'd learn to love you more passionately. That heaven would be our greatest inspiration. And God, that we would make it our goal to know you more and more and more. Oh God, will you do it in us and through us today. And we'll always give you thanks and praise for you are our God. Jesus is our Savior and our salvation. And the Holy Spirit is our comfort and strength. And so we thank you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.